The Public Pursuit Waterfowl Podcast would like to present to you a salute to our heroes. On February 14, 1989, Detective Alexander Mavity was shot and killed while attempting to recapture a prisoner who was attempting to escape custody. Detective Mavity chased the subject into the alley and began to struggle with him. The man was able to gain control of Detective Mavity's service weapon during the struggle and shot him. The man was then shot and killed by Detective Mavity as he continued to struggle for the weapon. Detective Mavity had served with the Billings Police Department for eight years. He was survived by his wife, daughter, sister, and parents. Detective Mavity, because of you and others like you, this country is and will remain the greatest nation on earth. Thank you for your service. Suit Waterfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Townsend, along with me again today, my buddy, Mr. David Strickland, and uh, all the way out from Texas, Dr. Phil Lavretsky. Uh, we've tried for a couple weeks now to get this put together, and it's finally, everything's lined up, and and both of these fellows are way smarter than I am, so I'll, I'll let them do most of the talking. I've got a couple of questions, but uh if you haven't already heard, you can check out uh, Dr. Phil Lavretsky's podcast uh, with Ramsey Russell. You guys did how has that been about a year ago, Phil? Uh, yeah, no, that was exactly a year ago. I met him at a, a SCI event. I stopped by, actually stopped by to ask him about uh, getting me some birds out of uh, South Africa, and then and then we just started chatting, and here we are. And Continue, continuing the conversation of the uh, of this interesting story that uh, thankfully folks are fo- folks are are, are uh, leeching on and uh, enjoying, and I'm enjoying having it. I know, uh, David. I like I I said before. I don't remember who actually uh, posted up those publishings in the message boards a while back, but uh, it was a uh, probably six months after that that I ran across that podcast one day while I was working and it just clicked some light bulbs on for me the same way it did for you. And uh, just some things that there were some things we thought we knew, but weren't really sure about that uh, his genetic studies confirmed. And then some other things we thought we knew it kind of threw some of those things out of the window as well. Uh, (laughs) But David, I'll go ahead and let you start and we'll go. We'll get started with this thing. I'm really excited. Very good. Thanks, Matthew. And uh, Dr. Phil, I greatly appreciate your time. 
Um, for those who don't know, just a brief introduction on Dr. Phil. He is a, uh, a waterfowl enthusiast. He's a hunter in general um, and, and is one of us, is what I would say, of the same cloth. And that just comes from having talked to him a couple of times over the last month and some of the conversations that we've had. Uh, he's a true hunter, a uh, public land hunter. And, um, you know, has a, a fairly big uh, war closet when it comes to the things that he enjoys as far as the challenge of hunting. Now, there's a lot of us out there that would say we fit that mold. There are very few of us out there, including myself, that can say that we fit the mold of being a uh, having a doctorate in the genetics and behavior of wildlife. So um, he's an invaluable tool. So what I'd like, Dr. Phil, if you could just kind of tell us who you are and uh, what your specialty is. And when you get into those things about genetics, if you could put it in your best layman's terms, you know, why are genetics important? What is DNA? Why does that make a difference as to uh, the research you're doing? No, that's great, David. I, I want to first uh, thank you guys uh, for having me on here. Uh, thank you guys for having me on here and, um, you know, giving me the opportunity and having this conversation. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it as well. Yeah. So, uh, uh, how did I get here? So I got here by starting duck hunt at, at around 10 years old and at Worcester in Southern California and cutting my teeth there on public land for a long time. And I just loved it. I, I, I love duck hunting. I love hunting in general. And, um, uh, when I, I started going to school, I went to school at U University of California, Davis. Um, did, you know, I started to do uh, genetics, core, you know, hardcore genetics, just because, to be fair, I, I loved uh, Jurassic Park. And, and I thought that was, a, you know, that's basically what got me going. Um, but then, you know, talking about Drosophila and, and, and just kind of your like, you know, mice and other core genetic models that all of us listen to or hear about. You know, that wasn't that wasn't my thing. It didn't jazz me up. And so I minored in wildlife conservation because that's really what I like to talk about and what I'm passionate about. And then I, I blended those two together because I found that genetics can be an equivalent tool for wildlife conservation as telemetry, you know, Jeep putting GPS units on on stuff and, and watching where they're going. Because what genetics gives you is the understanding of what you're actually looking at. And what you're working at and the, the simplest way of putting it is you might have two populations uh of uh, you know let's just call it two two snakes that look the same uh if you just looked at them you'd say that they're exactly the same but then if you look at closely well one is venomous the other one's not so and if you looked at the genetics you could see that they're two completely different species and one is simply mimicking the other and without understanding that you can't then go correctly forward with conservation or management efforts in, in, in that sense. So that, that is how I kind of base what genetics is and really what I do. So, so since then I've, you know, done a whole bunch of different work all with wildlife and specifically I focus on ducks and, and more specifically my work re revolves around the mallard group. And I've taken that work uh, to here, El Paso, Texas, where I run a wildlife genetics lab. And again, we, we, we do work with pretty much any organism that, you know, state or federal uh, uh, organizations uh, are concerned about or, or need help with. 
And, but uh, obviously our main focus is, still is uh, waterfowl. And more recently, really getting into understanding what is happening to mallards uh, in North America. And again, and obviously we'll be touching on that. But what we do here is if you've ever spit in a bottle and got your 23andMe or Ancestry.com uh, uh, data, that's what we do here. We figure out what it is that individual is is made of, right? So, so is it a mallard? Is it a mallard pintail hybrid? Is it a mallard gadwell hybrid? And how those genes are, are incorporated. End all be all. Why is that important? Because the only thing in life that doesn't lie is your genetics. Your genetics tells you the truth of what it is you are. And in a conservation or management perspective, understanding what makes an organism unique allows for better management efforts in the future because then you can say aha these things are adapted to do the x y and z so we should focus on uh increasing habitat here or increasing food availability or increasing winter habitat uh here or here because that's what they're adapted to so we should increase the availability of that if we want to increase population size if you don't know that then you'll be potentially flying blind as we've done many times in the past where we just assume something is is what it is but truly it's actually not and so potentially our management efforts might go on uh i guess deaf ears of the species we're trying to conserve gotcha so <clears throat> guys out there and haven't been in this uh you know i'm the founder of the carolina wildlife syndicate before that yeah, I've been lobbying and working in wild game. I'm going to not use the term wildlife because that has now since been blanketed to cover a lot of things that have nothing to do with wild game or hunting. So I'm going to use the term wild game. But I have a, a, a decent background in genetics. I had several years of it in college. So what I want to do right now is kind of give everybody out there listening and correct me where I'm wrong, Phil just a simple kind of analogy as to what genetics actually are, because I don't think a lot of people really understand it. So for, I'm going to try to get to the older generation that might be listening right now and say, here's what we got guys. If we're looking at an old work truck, the genetics be the components in that truck all combined. That would be the engine, your fuel pump, mechanical fuel pump, carburetor, et cetera, that your, your drivetrain, your di rear differential, et cetera. Uh, steering gearbox, everything. Those components would be basically the genetics that make up that work truck as a whole and controls how it runs. For the younger generation guys out there listening that maybe are into software, so the genetics are the computer program, the written code that is in that program that spits out whatever solution that you're wanting to do. In both of those cases, whether it be the work truck scenario that I'm using, or the software program that I'm using, if we go in there and we start modifying those parts or mod modifying parts of that software, we're going to change the results and the outcome of either the truck's performance or that software's performance. So that's just trying to give a little breakdown to those out you. Within, let's say, the human body, there's literally millions and pull millions of DNA sequences, RNA sequences that all control who you are, what you look like, your immunity, your heart size, your lung capacity, how fast you are, how slow you are, how smart you are, 
And within waterfowl, the same thing is applied. But in waterfowl, we'd relate it more to things such as maybe the density of feathers, the coloration of feathers, the size of the waterfowl, the lipid production, the lipid usage, which means fat for those out there, your protein utilizations, your uh, muscle uh, buildup, muscle endurability, how long it can sustain itself, the bone densities, your migratory behaviors, your mating behaviors, your nesting behaviors, your immune systems, and et cetera. So genetics is basically the study of the written code of why an animal is what it is and does what it does. And within that, what Dr. Phil is saying is that there's little tiny markers or little tiny segments of DNA that control little tiny things. And he's using those to trace all the way back. And it's letting him know where that duck came from, what that duck does, and possibly where it's going. Am I right in saying all of that? Yeah, no, I, your analogies are great. I might have to steal those. Uh, it, that, no, that's exactly it. It's, it's, you know, the software is the easiest one because it's code. It, that's all it is, is. It's code. Do this. And if you press on this button, it does this. Um, and if you put a segment of code in between the push button and do this, then when you push the button, it stops doing what it was supposed to do. I mean, that's that's exactly it. You start, you know, you start messing with, so genetic code is, is exactly that. It's just these four base pairs, uh, uh, four, it's really just four, four base pairs and the arrangement of them tells your body to create some sort of protein. And that protein then creates, expresses, uh, what you see. So like you said, it, it, you know, if you express certain proteins, you'll be so, so tall or so, you know, so much hair and so much, you know, eye color and, and, you know, longevity of how long you might live or not heart disease and so forth. And, and the easiest thing for me to explain this is if you lay in and bathe in the sun without sunscreen for long enough, you're going to create mutations in that code. And those mutations typically mess things up. And what do we usually confer, you know, what, 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 what's the end result of that is usually cancer. And that's because the cell is no longer correctly communicating. You've got damage to it. And now your cell goes out of control and you, and that's what causes cancer. And that's what happens when you mess with genetic code. Uh, uh, I mean, that's a potential cause, at least in humans, um, uh, in, in the wildlife world, I would say that these, the genetic code in, let's say, elk and deer and, and, and ducks, they're optimized or as best as it can be optimized to survive in their conditions, right? When to put fat on, when to get, you know, when to go through another coat, uh, you know, a coat change from summer coat to, to winter coat, uh, 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 ability to maximize, you know, uh, air intake because these elk live in high elevation versus desert. Um, all of these things are embedded in there. And if you start messing one population with another population that is adapted to different, uh, to different habitats or anything like that, you might have offspring that are just not good in either habitat. And in that case, you might see population declines and so forth. I mean, we tried to put you know, Eastern, uh, turkeys in Washington state where that gets, you know, and California, 
that gets so much uh, uh, so much more uh, rain water or not so much in California, and they're just not optimized for that. And that's why Easterns, I mean, they took in like two little tiny places in Washington, uh, but the rest of them all failed and they failed in New Mexico and they failed elsewhere because they're just not, that's not what they're optimized for. You know, that's why you see Rio's and Gould's where you do, because those are the turkeys that have been adapted, that adapted and they have the genetic code to be adaptive in those areas. And hopefully that kind of, that kind of brings us full circle here. Absolutely. And so we'll just cut to the chase uh, to everyone listening. You know, over the history of mankind, you know, we went from, you know, whatever your beliefs are. I'm, I'm a very strong believer in, in a God up above us and the scriptural God. But within that, I'm also, and this caused me a lot of issues growing up with such a strong scientific mindset and background. But I'm also very much a believer in evolution and natural selection in external wild stimulus and the adaptations that those things create. So what Dr. Phil is saying that genetic code is this, but if a stimulus such as he used reference of the sun is applied, then it can change that genetic code. And mother nature in wild is what basically she's the test giver for genetic code changes, meaning that if we change one part of the genetics in an individual through some stimulus, and, and for instance, a lot of people would say right now what's going on is we've had this global warming trend through whatever you want to call it, you know, sunbursts and or just natural global cooling cycling, that things are starting to adapt to that. I mean, we're seeing tree ducks all the way up in South Carolina. We're seeing, you know, just iguanas and boas that have gotten released down in the keys that are actually able to survive where 30 years ago they wouldn't have been able to survive um and mother nature tests those things now she could throw a curveball like she just did um and whack a lot of those things with a big time cold front so she's the ultimate and supreme tester of all things genetic code uh survival of the fittest is the way you would put it in ad adaptation so the reason that we're so interested in this and with you phil is because your specialty is genetics in the mallard and on the east coast and matthew and i are old enough to remember this we had lots of big plump juicy delicious fun challenging what i would say were either wild mallards or a very low blend of domestic into wild mallard. And now we virtually have none and it's decreased over the last 10 years at a extremely rapid pace such that everyone took notice. The Atlantic flyway council lowest lowered us down from four to two mallards. And those of us that say grew up on farms and those of us who just, I guess what's, I hate to say it this way, but have common and practical sense, have seen the practice of the release of game farm mallards into our population, excuse me, um, for as long as I've been alive, which is 50 years. And in that have obviously identified that it's been going on for a lot longer. So it causes us grave concern. And I would say, especially us boys that may have grown up on a farm, because we never ever saw our fathers or our grandfathers take 
their prize bull and breed it to the worst heifer out there or take their prize heifer and breed it to the very worst bull on the field. The practice was is to take your best bull and your best heifer to ensure, and that goes with all animals, be it chickens or any type of domesticated animal, if you want the best results, or the, for that matter, dogs in the world of canines and retrievers and field trialers, hunt testers and AKC hunters. Um, animal husbandry has been around for a very, very long time. And at no point in the success of animal husbandry is we ever taken excellent specimen A and bred it to worse specimen Z, hoping for a good outcome. So a lot of us are under the impression that this has been detrimental and possibly behind the demise of what we're seeing on the East Coast as to our wild mallard population. So I'm going to let you speak on that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if your uh, uh, listeners haven't, you know, either read some of the stuff that I've written in DU or DU magazine or Cal Waterfowl magazine or, or some of the other po- podcasts, to it, the short of it is that now, as you had mentioned, the Southeastern Atlantic Flyway, which you guys are a part of, Yes, you guys have always had strains of wild mallards coming to you guys uh, out of the prairie pothole region. If you looked at the northeastern section and you looked at historical data out of Maine, New York, Massachusetts, you know, those those play, the, the far northeast mallards were actually quite rare uh, uh, up to really the 1950s. However, that rarity uh, amongst those folks uh, caused them to want to shoot greenheads as well. And so early on in the 1915s, there were efforts to trap and, and try to breed uh, mallards that were trapped out of North America, so wild mallards, uh, and, and American black ducks at the time. And they have obviously didn't take. It's very difficult. Uh, well, they might have taken to some extent, but to be fair, they were never going to create the output that we always enjoy in a cage. And so the, the, the thought was, and somebody must have had it, was that Europeans were breeding mallards as you would breed dogs or anything else for a long period of time. They had figured out how to get optimum numbers of mallards out of, uh, of these domestic flocks. So somebody came, must have had the idea to go to Europe go get some of these mallards, uh, game farm mallards that we'll call these domestic breeds and bring them here and start to breed them. Because, and we now know that, it, because when I go and look at the uh, uh, game farm mallards across many of, of the areas in North America, they are all of the same breed. And that breed is only found uh, when I go and I look at breed, the domestic game farm mallards out of Sweden, France, and, and a couple other places that I was able to get samples uh, in Europe. They're the same thing. And that thing is very different than what we have here in North America. Uh, this North American wild mallard. Now, why is this important? Well, so the original dogma that we've been under for the last, you know, really 100 years was that we have these domestic animals. It's fine to release them because they either get shot, they stay on their pond that they, they are released on. If they leave the pond, they definitely don't survive into breeding. And if they do do survive into breeding, they don't breed. And I'll just get to the to the crux of it, their genetics, 
their signature is widespread now, and it's very and it's and it's uh, uh, particularly widespread in the Atlantic Flyway that has experienced the highest numbers of releases to uh, throughout time. Uh, there are game farms being released, game farm mallards being released elsewhere, and you could look, you could find this in a U.S. Fish and Wildlife report at least in 2011. Uh, that has that shows about 250,000 of them being released, but the Atlantic Flyway makes up 210 plus thousand. And I, to be fair, my own opinion is that this is uh, uh, a lot fewer than the than the actual number being released. Uh, just by talking to some folks uh, that are being re- that are releasing some of these mallards. So why is this important? Um, so the the, the importance is is that. Right at the turn, so if you looked at a mallard pre-1920, regardless, of, and this is what we did with these, we, we went to the historical samples of, of, of mallards from museums like the Smithsonian um, that thankfully, you know, hunters, you know, duck hunters have been around forever and they've been collecting birds and shipping them to museums. And now we have the tools to get the DNA. It's almost like Jurassic Park, but not quite. Um, so we get the, <laughs> we get the, we get the dinosaur DNA out of these things and we're able to compare it to today's birds. And if I took a, a mallard west of the Mississippi, they look identical. So these hundred plus year old birds look identical to birds that were that are that are west of the Mississippi. However, if I compare it to birds that are just you know randomly shot by hunters uh, in the Atlantic and and to to a great extent in the Mississippi now uh, flyways, we're finding this very distinct genetic signature that that was not present a hundred years ago. Um, and this genetic signature is now we've published this. We've, it's concrete. It is the, the source of it are game farm mallards, not park mallards or anything like that, which are different domestic mallard things, but game farm mallards. And these game farm mallards, the source of them are of European descent. So now you've got a bird that you're releasing that has not only been in a domestic setting for a minimum 100 years in, in, in North America, but for many, probably many more generations in Europe um, and, and that are not even of North American descent being pumped into the system. And I know that folks are going to say, well, yeah, but but survival is quite low, which is true. However, if you pump half a million birds, which is what was occurring uh, pre-1950, and then 250,000, uh, you know, best guesstimate uh, up continuing 1950 to today, every single year, even two or three percent survival is a huge number being put inputted into the system every single year um, that has now caused to... Uh, the Atlantic Flyway, uh, you guys essentially, it, regardless of what state I sort of look at, you've got about a, if you shoot a, a green head out of the sky, you've got about a 5% chance uh, that that thing is a true wild North American mallard and not either simply a feral, which is that year's game farm actually coming into the game, you know, into a hunter's bag or like a feral pig, or just simply a mutt or a hybrid of the two. So some form of wild feral mix. And that is what's happening. And that signature, you know, decreases. If you're in the Mississippi flyway, you've got about 50% chance currently. And then that drops off. If you're in the, if you're west of that, so in the central and Pacific flyways, 
uh, you've got a much smaller chance. It's really only like 5% chance that you're, you're shooting a mutt or a feral. And the, which makes sense because there's so few game farm mallard mallards being released there. Uh, the prairie pothole population is so large. And so you're shoot, you're still shooting. You're still very much shooting a North American wild mallard. But what's happened in the East coast, especially on the U S side of things, uh, is that you've essentially swamped the wild North American mallard that, you know, what, to whatever extent that was breeding there is now comprised of mostly hybrids or simply feral birds that are breeding on the landscape. Matthew, do you got anything on that? Yeah. Y'all, y'all both, uh, David, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, you know, being a Christian and, uh, evolution and all that. I was just driving before we started. I was, I was thinking to myself the exact same thing that even as an evangelical Christian, I, I have a strong connection and belief in science. And like Dr. Phil was saying, the genetics of these, these studies don't lie. And what we, I've seen so much recently is, and David, you touched on this, we have generations of new hunters that they've never experienced mallard duck hunting to begin with. So as important as this is to people like you and I and Dr. Phil and, you know, hordes of others, there's also a huge following of people that don't get it because they've never experienced mallard hunting. And it's not, it's not an important bird to them. They don't really care if the population is interbred. They don't care if it goes away and it's a different bird altogether because they've really never dealt with it. So that I, especially in our state, I feel like that's one of the biggest battles we're fighting. Um, and uh, something else, and Dr. Phil touched on this, and I've seen it compared. I'd like to get his opinion on it. Uh, when we talk about the detriment that, uh, mallard release programs have on wild populations. People bring up uh, the restoration of the eastern wild turkey, and they try to, you know, and David. I'm sure you've seen that same argument. Uh, they try to compare the two, but it obviously two distinct. One because they're you're taking one wild bird and restoring that, where as in the other case, you're taking a completely different animal and injecting it into a wild population yeah I, I, let me let me touch i think that was a good segment look can i can i touch on uh why these birds are so different absolutely yeah absolutely yeah so like that the wild turkey that's that's a great one yeah no that exactly they took a, a subset of wild birds they quickly created a whole bunch of them and then they continue to release those wild birds the difference here is somebody took a bird that has been in captivity. So that the wild turkey was never in captivity for hundred, a hundred years, a hundred generations or more. It was in captivity. We got as many as we could, and we started to pile them everywhere, anywhere we could, essentially, and try to get their numbers up. The difference here is that this bird has been in captivity for so long, it's entire. It's like taking. The, you want to really you want to get more wolves out there and you take a chihuahua and you try to release it and you call it a wolf <laughs> in my opinion so this thing looks and I like think, <laughs> let me let me stop you right there we need to make this clear to a lot of people 
And I think this is where it gets missed because humans are so visually oriented. It's probably our number one de facto go-to sense. And so what happens in that is that, and it happens with, you know, you've talked about rainbow trout. Um, we've talked about the turkey, quail. So these animals, they look like this domesticated game farm mallard to the non-practiced eye looks what? I mean, 100%, no, 99%, 98, it's really daggum close to 100, exactly in its coloration and its features. Coloration. Same Only as coloration. a North American yeah. wild mallard. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. it. And the reason we call this domestic breed game farm versus like a pecan or a rowan duck. So these are all varieties of domestic duck that people have created from the mallard. Just like right. there are various lab, you know, lab, chihuahua, poodle, whatever. They all can't. Eventually you can, you know, that they're, you know, Adam and Eve is a wolf pack. Right. At some point. But they don't look like wolves now. So yep. a game farm was being bred to look like a uh, a mallard. So that's why we call them game farms because they're like they're a gamey farm duck. However, the problem is, is that we not only wanted them to look the same, but we also wanted them to be more sporty, you know, quote unquote. And so how do you make a bird more sporty? Well, you make them smaller so that they could fly faster and they seem uh, 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 more, you know, harder to hit, I guess is what I'm trying to get. And that's exactly what this bird is. It is on average two to 300 grams smaller. It is, uh, uh, so that's, and that might not seem significant, but essentially what you're, you're shooting is a widgeon gadwell size. So if you're on the East coast and you shoot a mallard and you're like, you, you might shoot two mallards and you're like, well, this one's super small and this one's this giant. It's actually the giant that's the wild one and the, and the small one is your domestic breed there. And it, that's because, again, it's what people have chosen. And people choose things that, uh, that they like. So in this case, we chose something that is flightier, that is more interesting to shoot, I guess. Uh, but on top of it, we've changed the biology of these things. We want these things pumping out eggs. We don't want them sitting on those eggs. So that way we can just go and get them. And if we put them on Purina Chow, they will lay eggs year round. And that's exactly what these things do. They, in a cage, they do exactly what we want because they've been, they've been changed by people. You know, you keep picking, oh, well, this hen keeps laying more eggs than this hen. So we'll kill that hen and we'll just keep that hen. And their kids will lay more eggs and their kids will lay more eggs. And eventually we've got this bird that is small in stature, flightier, uh, has a pro, very prolonged uh, ability to to breed, doesn't care about its eggs so much, uh, and will continue to dump eggs as long as you keep giving it enough food uh, on the landscape. So that's great. However, if you put those attributes into into the wild, those are not great attributes, right? It's not great for a hen to keep pumping out eggs that she's not going to sit on uh, to allow all the foxes, coyotes, and raccoons just to go eat them. It's not great to have a bird that's two or 300 grams smaller than it should be in that area because you've got hard winters in New York and Massachusetts. Well, now everywhere right now. And so a 1200 gram bird at peak weight 
when it's supposed to be a peak weight, which is winter, which is now, can survive those cold blasts. A bird that's 700 or 900 gram bird without the fat stores can't, it won't. And so you're, you're now mixing a gene pool that is optimized. One is optimized to be in the wild and the other one is optimized for a cage. And what is optimized in a cage is never optimized in the wild. And we have continued to see this for the salmon that are pumped out, the rainbow trout that are pumped out. Uh, they're pumped out. And the only reason you're, you're catching those rainbows in that area is because they're pumped that year. And it's hard for me to say because I like catching those rainbows. Uh, but they're not going to be there. Or a very small proportion is going to be there after a year of Mother Nature doing its thing and basically killing off everybody who's not really optimized. And that's that would be the majority if you know, 99% of the things that we pump out from a cage is just not going to be great. Uh, whether they don't know the cues of nature to migrate, they can't do the fat stores, they can't even feed on the uh, on things. So that's another thing. Um, both my colleagues in, in Europe and, and we're doing a much finer detailed uh, work. But if you look at the bill of these mallards it, it just if you shoot to a few of these mallards just look at the bill it's going to be stubbier uh we know the lamella are spaced at a larger distance and that's because they haven't been under that selection to be able to filter feed small wild seeds they've been in a cage where we throw them breadcrumbs or corn or whatever the hell we're, we're giving them that day um and so when you what, what, how does that translate? Well, that translates to the fact that you, again, you've got a bird optimized for a certain type of food. And let's say DU buys a, a, a golf course and turns it into a beautiful marsh. Well, in, in New York or Massachusetts, well, that, well, that great conservation effort actually decreased the carrying capacity of that land for that mallard. The best thing would either leave the golf course or put a whole bunch of corn there uh, for that kind of mallard to survive through the winter and so forth. Uh, uh, and it, because they can't filter feed, you know, that's, that's the, that's the thought right now. We have preliminary data and we're going to further test that, but it looks like they are inefficient, completely inefficient at actually eating wild, small, wild seeds and small, wild invertebrates. They just don't, it, it, it leaves their mouths. They can't eat it. So that's a huge, if you, if you do this in a, in a numbers way, and you look at a population, if, a, if the majority of your population starts to have those types of traits, you're going to see uh, uh, population declines. And that's potentially, at least additively, or, you know, part of the problem that the Atlantic Flyway may be having, at least on the U.S. side, for sure. So, yeah, man, I mean, you're, you're all in my wheelhouse as to fears <laughs> um knowing what i know which is nowhere near as you do so i want to just so say to people um when he talks about lamilla he's talking about the little grooves that kind of look like teeth they're actually a part of the inside and both the underneath and it's a recess over the top of the bill over the under part of the bill and it looks like little tiny strainers. Let's just call them strainers, much like the baleen on a well. Right. And so these domesticated birds have not had to filter feed strain their entire lives throughout the generations. They've just been fed large grain stock 
uh, silages and things of that nature, whereas a wild bird has to have the ability to strain out every little resource it can, macroinvertebrates, microinvertebrates, the small seeds, smart weeds, and things such as that. So that is one of the things that goes, it turns on this big light for me. It's like, hey, we are injecting a trait that is not synonymous to the very premise of survival in the wild, which is being able to feed yourself properly. Secondly, would be to reproduce properly. We don't have a clue as to what it does with migration, but back in the day, there was a lot of domestic birds, game farm mallards that were banded, and there was data, and there still is occasionally, you'll hear of somebody in the Midwest killing a bird here from one of our large release operations. They killed it, you know, some thousand miles away. So that does indicate that those birds will jump up and some of them do interbreed. So we're taking a really good thing that mother nature has designed by trial and error and injecting something that's exactly the opposite of what can survive in mother nature's day-to-day lifestyles. And that's just not good. I mean, it scares me. So back to the origination of this conversation was about color in the entirety of the mallard genetics, wild mallard genetics and domestic genetics, there's been a lot of him and Hall discussion as to what does the coloration on the speculum mean? You know, can I go off of that to identify black mallard hybrid, a, a mallard, you know, domestic hybrid, a domestic versus wild, a mottled black, uh, and et cetera. And if you just touch base on, you know, what, how big of a thing is the coloration on a duck, on the speculum, as to what it actually is, and uh, just kind of go through your knowledge base on that for everybody that's listening, because this is a big discussion all the time. Is this or this or this or this? And now, after having read what you want, I'm just, what you've said in the past, I'm just like, okay, that doesn't really matter. So if you would just kind of roll people with that one. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, plumage in these North American mallard-like ducks it has become more complicated than than uh, than not to some extent, and that's because the what we always considered as an indicator of hybridization, so so uh, black in the rump, the curl in the tail, a little bit of green in the head, uh, vermiculation in a black. So if you saw that in a in a thing that that mostly looks like a black duck or a model duck or a Mexican duck, you'd be well, that's a hybrid. And what we're now really learning, because we have the genetics of these things, we have the 23andMe and we're like, wait a minute, this thing that shows these traits are clearly assigning to black duck ancestry or model duck ancestry or Mexican duck ancestry. And what that has opened up uh, our eyes is that the majority of shared ancestry among these things is really due to the mallard being the ancestor of these uh, uh, monochromatic or brown ducks versus the hybridizer, the wild mallard, the wild North American mallard, and, and just a very quick uh, kind of summation of, of of our findings is that the wild mallard uh, evolved somewhere in, North, in Eurasia, came over uh, at, uh, uh, in, into North America, 
you can imagine North America just being widespread mallard, greenheads everywhere. And then because glaciers essentially, you know, if you looked at a map, what's funny is if you look at a map of the snow that was here coming down to Texas, it looks like that. It's just that glacier. And if you look at it carefully enough, the Chihuahuan Desert, the Florida and part of the West Gulf Coast didn't get snow cover. And those are the exact locations that we know are refugia during the 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 uh, glaciers when glaciers were here, and that's exactly where we where we find the alternative mallard, the model duck, the Mexican duck, and as those receded, mallard pockets in the east uh, adapted to the boreal forest, which we now consider black duck. Why is this important to know? Well, that really actually starts to to give us an indication that, hey, uh, some of this mallard-like ancestry, these plumage traits might simply be ancestry. And when we, when we do, you know, when, when we start looking at these plumage traits in the head and the body and elsewhere, what we find across the board is that hatch year, first year, formative, uh, first year, uh, sexy plumage ducks, uh, whether it's a model duck, a black duck, or a Mexican duck, tend to show a lot of mallard traits. And, they, and they're showing them not because they're hybrids. They, and if that bird then survives to its second year to be an adult, it stops showing it. And if it survives long enough into its ninth year, 10th year, it might start showing it up again. It's uh, these so the mallard gen- the wild mallard genetics is in there. It's about it's about these birds have adapted to control it so they look brown because in their world it's really to better to look brown and look like a rock and not get eaten than it is to look like a big old sexy uh, male that that the females are interested in. It's these differences of of where these pockets were and how they adapted to those pockets. So. Getting to your to your question to your answer, looking at the at the coloration, a black duck and a mallard are is very difficult. Uh, I would not I would not use that. I wouldn't even use the white wing bar uh, at this point. We need to do a better study and and hope hopefully one day you know we can get enough funding to do it to do what we've done for model ducks and Mexican ducks at this point. But we really genetically vetted did twenty three and me on hundreds of samples. Uh, for model ducks and Mexican ducks, we then looked, we then, you know, did all of our plumage comparisons and started to find out that both in model ducks and Mexican ducks, that kind of variation. So the coloration in, in, in uh, on the wing, the, the various structure on the wings and the body, uh, a lot of mallard-like characters can be found in a pretty significant proportion. So 10 to 20% of a population due to ancestry and not because they're hybrids. They might look like a hybrid and this actually creates the problems, uh, but they're not. So if you've got a hatch year bird, a first year bird that looks like a hybrid, a male that looks like a hybrid, I would be very difficult to to call it a hybrid. If you've got a good adult bird showing mallard traits, that I would be confident at uh, calling a hybrid. Um, And so, we just don't have the data for black ducks now for, for, for Mexican ducks and model ducks. Yeah. If you see that more greenish hue, that's a good indicator of a, of a pure bird uh, for, for those species as compared to the mallard uh, for the black duck. I would not use that. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't use that uh, as far as I, 
as far as the data that we've got, it's not significant, even though the presence of those white wing bars is not significant uh, for black ducks, Mexican ducks and bottle ducks. So uh, a lot of the traits that we that we always thought were indicative of hybrids are, are, show, are showing up to not be. We're finding other traits that are uh, that are specific to these birds. But again, it, it takes this genetic vetting to say, OK, what we're working with here is truly pure model duck or pure black duck or pure Mexican duck. And let now let's look at these traits uh, uh, more correctly, I guess, is, is, is what I'm trying to say. That's really cool stuff to me that the ancestry is literally showing itself through the first year genetic expression of the plumation of waterfowl. I mean, that's just, it's kind of cool. You know, it, I think it also resolves a lot of issues because there's always this, it's kind of jokingly, um, but, you know, hey, look at this black duck I killed and somebody's like hen mallard or model duck <laughs> or whatever. I think that we really kind of, you know, it is, it is funny, you know, because especially in our area, <clears throat> the black duck, what some of us would call a big old battleship black duck, you know, he's three pounds plus, really jet black with a purplish uh, speculum, white bars, big old red feet. You know, that's kind of like the king of things to kill in the Atlantic Flyway. So everybody wants to have <laughs> in their trophy box and, I've got several guys, so eat your hearts out. Matthew's got more than me. But um, the, uh, the controversy there surrounding is like, you know, kind of a, a misdirection of what we should all be caring about. Um, and so to, to recap all that for the listeners out there, guys, don't, don't worry about the fact that you may have killed a black duck or a model duck or a mallard. You need to be in tune with the fact that all of those – evolved over thousands of years, millions of years, actually, from the original wild mallard. So without the wild mallard, we wouldn't have those, and our wild mallards are in trouble. And so we're trying to kind of lead down this pathway. I'm just going to step out there and kind of bluntly say it at this time. We're The facts that we know, and Matt or Phil, y'all correct me as I say this. The facts that we know are that there's not a lot of wild mallards or mallards in general in the game bag of the Atlantic Coast flyway hunters. That 10 years ago, they were more so, five years ago, more so. And I can remember it was probably 10 years ago. I watched a flight of mallard of several thousand come into a spot which they had never been. And I want to segue off of this and then we, we talk about mallard complexes here in just a little bit and that we might very well as in many cases as humans be doing something very very detrimental and that the facts would say that it's not a might it's kind of a evolved science that says hey guys you've been polluting your wild mallard genetics which have been created over the millennia of mother nature and her testing them to make sure that they have a high feasibility of survival. And you've been dumping in a bunch of junk into that. And so what do you expect? You're going to lose that wild mallard if we have not already gotten to a point where we have lost it and it cannot come back. So 
talking about, I want to go to complexes, talking about the prairie pothole region and complexes. So a lot of people don't really understand. And there was some kickback to your Ramsey podcast amongst some pretty knowledgeable guys. There was a part in there where you said, you know, prior to 1920, the Atlantic Flyway didn't have mallards. And I want to clarify that for everyone that's listening, because you and I talked about it. And what that refers to is a complex of mallards that came from the prairie pothole region, the breeding grounds. They flew across the originating slightly above and slightly west and in the surrounding area of the Mississippi River uh origination they fly down a little bit they take a hard turn to eastward and we're settling somewhere around the slightly south of delmarva virginia all the way down and then they were trickling down i think what you mean is there just wasn't a whole lot of the northeastern population like a nesting breeding population that actually originated in the atlantic flyway so i just want to put that out there but as to the complexes so People are like, well, it's no big deal. You know, uh, there's mallards all the way that are California, the Central Flyway, Mississippi still Flyway has them. Um, and I'm like, wait a second, you're missing the whole point here because we know these game farm mallards came from Europe now. You've delineated that factually. We've tra- tracked the genetics all the way back to some place in Europe. They've been doing it for lots longer than we have. I mean, guys, you've got to remember that we've only been a country and established for, you know, a couple hundred years here. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, you also have to understand that, you know, there were firearms in greater production over in the European countries and that hunting was uh, a really big thing over there, even commercialized hunting over there well before we were even, you know, up and on our feet. And so what I want you to do, Phil, is if you can tie in the status of the wild European mallard and relate that to the complexes of mallards that we have in the breeding grounds and what complexes kind of mean. Like I take it as a little niche, a group, a gang of mallards that are all kind of mating and doing their mating and breeding in one area nesting. And then they kind of go do their thing and how that European example, as you talk about the state of the European wild mallard, might very well be what we're up against in our future. Yeah, sure. And and uh, I just wanted to, so, so our best estimates for North America when, when all this happened was about half a million years was the split between Eurasian wild mallards in North America. So North America was basically colonized by Eurasian mallards about half a million years ago. And then over the last half million years, you know, these pockets of mallards uh, evolved, adapt, adapted to the, you know, the sunshine state of, uh, of Florida, the West Gulf Coast, the Eastern, what used to be all boreal forest and the, and the Chihuahuan Desert being the Mexican duck. And so it's been, you know, half a million years of adaptation and trial and testing like you, you were t- talking about. And, you know, it, these different pockets of birds uh, being, you know, who's who's best fit to to live eat breed in florida and who's best fit to eat breed live in in the west gulf coast and so forth and so that that's that's the timeline in north america so what's happening so then so so just to pivot back uh what's happening in in europe so yeah my european counterparts have been studying sort of what's a, a similar trend far longer than i have here because really we've only 
recently figured it, this out um, because I was still on the same dogma as everybody else. Like game farm mallards don't matter uh, as far as the breeding gene pool goes. And, and, and before I continue, I just need to make it very, very clear. The only way to have genetics in a certain place is through sex. That's the only way. So if you tell me that a game, so, so the fact that game farm mallard genetics is, is in many lineages of mallards uh, of all sorts that are being shot in, you know, these varieties of hybrids being shot in, in the, particularly in the Eastern North America in the Atlantic flyway, this tells me that they not only survive, but they successfully breed, even if it's not a lot of them, enough of them are clearly breeding with that. And it, it's causing the problem that we have now, which is it's hard to find a, a North American wild mallard. All right. So what's happening in, in Europe? So Europe's been doing the same thing, pumping out game farm mallards for, for far longer than, than uh, North America has. And currently they continue to pump out, I believe, I believe the recent estimate was about 3 million birds. So again, we do 250,000, at least that's what U.S. Fish and Wildlife Report uh, shows. Again, I think it's more than that, but, you know, we do quarter of a million. They do three million plus a year. And when I, when, you know, I was able to fortunately through, you know, good collaborations, get mallard samples all the way from, you know, even Greenland and Iceland and, and the UK, Spain and France and Germany and all, you know, a whole slew uh, across uh, Russia, India, China. Um, and, and what's interesting is that this same pattern that we're seeing here, which is this like center of origin of game farm mallard uh, uh, being on the East Coast and, and, then, and then decreasing in presence as you go westward, there the center of origins is really Europe. Uh, uh, you know, I can't, I can't tell you exactly where, but, but, you know, where we've sampled, uh, um, you find this, God, it's almost all feral. And then it spreads out as you go, as you go away from that origin. So obviously far East Russia is all still pure, pure, their European, you know, wild mallard. Um, and if you go into Greenland and Iceland, you still have pure mallards there in UK, but then UK and other parts. And as you go into Italy and Spain, you start getting these mixtures that we see in like, let's say the Mississippi flyway. It's this stepwise progression from origin and out. So because we have this data, we can clearly see where the origin is and the origins are always where the continuous interbreeding happens. So where the birds are being pumped out and in North America, that would be, you know, Jersey, Maryland where some of the largest game farm mallard uh, releases are being uh, occur. And that's where we find true F1 hybrids, which is that year's mate pairings. And then as you go away from that, as you go into Massachusetts or South into the Carolinas, you just find varieties of hybrids. If you, you know, so it's these ver varieties of back crosses, which is a hybrid with a hybrid or whatever's out there. Um, and so we can identify these origins. And what, what the problem is, is that in Europe, because they pump so many, currently for them to see mallard flights, let's say in France and elsewhere, they need to, their whole management strategy is when to pump out mallards, right? They've, they are getting very close to, let, to what uh, many fisheries are, which is if you want to catch uh, salmon, an extreme, we better be pumping them out in May or in, you know, for you to catch them in June or what, you know, for trout. Okay. You know, 
the high elevation alpine lakes are unfrozen. Let's go pump out some, some fish into there. And now you get to fish um, and, until the next year. And, and so what's happening in Europe is that their management strategy is when to put out more game farm mallards so that way people have a flight uh, and, see, and see green heads and shoot green heads versus uh, how to maintain and better, better keep our wild mallards because they've suffer, they're suffering to the point of, uh, I guess, essentially of no return at this point. Uh, um, and so with us, you know, it's st- that those genetics are starting to trickle into, into the prairie potholes to, a per, uh, you know, every year I'm finding a little bit more and a little bit more. And so you can imagine at one point, you know, you've got this phenomenal public resources, right? Even in North America, we keep saying there's tw- 10 to 12 million uh, uh, wild mallards in the prairie potholes, which is which is a phenomenal number. These aren't endangered; they're nothing, and and yet we're now starting to pollute it every so little bit and more and more uh, every year with a private this privatized domestic duck. Um, and so, what is that? What 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 does that do? Well, we've got some good research going on to really figure out, okay, what is the, what, what, how does that change our survival indices? How does that change our nesting capacities, uh, habitat needs? Um, so what happens when you interbreed these two? We're just starting to really get at that. The Europeans are far ahead of us and they just published a phenomenal study uh, on survivability that they, that they put a band, band recoveries on a whole bunch of birds um out of sweden and they and they looked at survival of game farm versus wild and, and so forth and and so while wilds still have that nice 50 to 60 percent survival rate which is almost identical to our wild mallard studies uh game farm mallards had a two to three percent survival and that and if you're if you want to average those out then you're decreasing survival substantially by moving these these traits are clearly not adaptive in the wild into a into your population, and that is obviously one of the reasons that their uh, uh, you know their fall flight needs to be augmented. So you can imagine a, a scenario of if our fall fall flights are basically you know they, a bunch of ducks that don't know what they're doing, then potentially our uh, twenty five dollar uh, duck stamp uh, will be going right back into. Uh, uh, game farms to try to buy some birds to throw out so so people feel like they're still shooting greenheads. <laughs> Worst case scenario, I guess. And and I'm, that's an unfortunate fact for me who, you know, wants, I mean, at least, you know, me, I want to, if I'm going to shoot birds, I want to shoot wild birds. And that's, you know, I want them tried and tested and, and have all the capacity to lead, to circle me, you know, 10 times and pick, pick me out. Finally, that hen picks me out and leaves. And, you know, that's, that's my fault. Should have been better camoed versus a bird that's just like, Oh, there's, there's a bunch of things. I should just go there. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and stop it here for now. Uh, you can go ahead and find part two of this podcast with Dr. Phil Lovertsky and David Strickland. Uh, thanks for listening. If you haven't already, check out the Facebook and Instagram page at public pursuit waterfowl. Also, If you're not already a member, you can check out Carolina Wildlife Syndicate on Facebook and become a member there as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.